Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Morning, Margie. Morning, Claire. Is it raining at yours too? It's pouring here. You can tell it's August in Edinburgh. The rain is battering down on top of the Open Book office where I am recording this morning. It feels like proper Scottish summer. All that sunshine had me kind of befuddled. And I saw something on on the internet this morning, someone saying on social media, he feels guilty when the sun shines. And I replied saying, I feel like myself when the sun shines. So yeah, this feels like we're back into proper Scottish summer, don't you think? Yeah, and it's going to be odd this year not sitting in the yurt in Charlotte Square, listening to the rain, feeling slightly chilly and a little bit damp. <laughs> I can actually, when you say that, I can actually smell that kind of, um, is it seagrass or something carpet underneath that smell of damp carpet, you know, the kind of woven carpets coming up. But I'm so glad that we get the festival. I think months ago it felt like we weren't going to have anything and that the city would be dead and we wouldn't have a festival of any kind. So I'm actually really pleased that we get some other festival this year and that and for our groups it means everybody can go to everything if they want to which is a big change it's great yeah and there's so much great stuff in there that i just can't wait i think i'm going to be hooked up to zoom permanently i know me too and you know what if we're really missing the yurt i'll just come around and we'll sit under your rainy gazebo be cold (laughs) and watch the water fall off the roof so we'll miss all that this year but at least as you say we're getting to zoom into some brilliant events so i'm really looking forward to that so um Today, we get another one of our incredible commissions. So pleased to have been able to commission the work, but also particularly moved by the work that's been produced. And our groups have loved each and every one so far. So today's um, one by Catherine Coromilas called The Happy House. And we're going to add two poems that are her choices, Home is So Sad by Larkin and The Little Sea House by Hamish McLaren. So shall we just get cracking? Yeah, do you want to start us off with the Larkin? Home is so sad. Home is so sad. It stays as it was left, shaped to the comfort of the last to go as if to win them back. Instead, bereft of anyone to please, it withers so, having no heart to put aside the theft and turn again to what it started as, a joyous shot at how things ought to be, long fallen wide, You can see how it was. Look at the pictures and the cutlery, the music in the piano stool, that face. Makes me think of these images that came out years ago of abandoned houses on the aisles. And there's this beautiful photography project that went out and actually took images of what was left in those houses. And because people left on very small boats, really personal belongings were still in the houses. The beds were often made chests of drawers with pieces of perfume bottles and things still left on top. I must go and look that up. I haven't seen that project. I think years ago, we, a few of us wrote to it, kind of imagining giving the houses voices, which makes me think of this lark, and but also imagining the people in the situation in which you would have left it, almost in situ, you know, exactly as it was. So this is the home that Larkin, for me, is describing. For some reason, the inhabitants have gotten up and left. But I don't know about you. What do you make of what's going on in this poem? I wondered if it was just the emptiness of the house during the day. 
That's a nicer way to look at it. Yeah, I was kind of looking. I didn't want home to be sad. So I I guess I was kind of looking for that moment when the the last person goes out in the morning and shuts the door behind them and the house sort of holds its breath until the occupants return back at the end of the day. Well, I often think my house would just be delighted, would sigh with relief for the lack of noise for a few hours. But yeah, for me, it was an empty nest kind of poem, that idea. The music and the piano still, for example, in our house growing up. I'm pretty sure I can actually imagine the feel of opening that piano stool and I'm pretty sure that the order of the music in it will still be pretty much where how I left it. So that idea of, you know, some things never get shifted because they're only shifted by certain inhabitants. It made me think a bit as well about, you know, you and I both have our eldest who are kind of on the cusp of going off to university. Mine's got another year to go and that question of what will you do with their room and their space? My youngest is already making uh, noises about getting her brain other's room and there's a little bit of me that thinks oh no no I want his room to be left so he can come back which I know is ridiculous it's the idea of shape to the comfort of the last to go as if to win them back I had a funny situation as soon my parents really wanted to move further out of town in Washington DC when we were in our last years of high school my brother and I resolutely denied them that and said no way are we you know finding our way a bus or driving out another 10 miles out into the countryside so literally I graduated from high school and that summer my parents moved house I had that very strange thing of for years going back home was not going to the house that I had ever really lived in I never lived in it yeah I had a similar experience but not quite as abrupt as yours in that my parents moved out into the country from being in town in my final year of school. So I had one year of living in the house, but it still never really felt like mine. I felt like I was just passing the time. What about the theft that's talked about having no heart to put aside the theft? and turn again to what it started as. What's the theft in this poem? Well, I don't know. It's like something else has stolen its inhabitants, I guess, is what I thought it was. What did you think it was? Yeah, I I kind of thought home is where the heart is and that sort of connection and the home being a bit fed up at no longer being where the heart is, as it were. The family's been stolen away. I love the way the poem ends to that vase because everybody's got a vase, right? They will picture in those two words, whatever it is. So without describing it, he's given us permission to put our own one in the poem. I love the reference to the cutlery as well, given how central food and family meal and sitting around the table yeah, are. Yeah, and the pictures. So those feel like relics somehow. Pictures, cutlery, music and the stool and the, va- the vase. Yeah, lovely. Shall we move on to Catherine's story now and see how she connects it into the the poem she picked. The Happy House by Catherine Coromilas After he left, Adele understood she still loved Greg. She also understood about the house. Here she is. Greg's been gone a few weeks and she's taking the bins out for the very first time, dragging them over the gravel to their designated place on the pavement just across from the sheep-speckled field and the foot of the burn. And now, turning back to the house, she captures it in full, it seems, for the very first time. And she's struck with a sense of recognition and a memory. It's a happy house, she says, and her eyes widen in wonderment, which they haven't done in a very long time. She's right. It really is a happy house. In fact, it's the happy house. In the summer of 1975, she must have drawn the happy house a hundred times. She was five. 
That kid in her happy pink and white room with her happy stuffed toys, her happy pink ballerina blanket and her happy pink and white dressing table at which she sat drawing her happy houses or swivelling around to sooty into a plié and then pirouette to the mirrored audience of her wardrobe doors. It was years later, in design school, that she read Bachelard's The Poetics of Space and recognised he was describing her happy houses, their simple square scaffold, their grounded single story, their peaked roof, their strong framed front door, always at the very centre. Their windows, always two, and one on each side of the door, as if symmetry meant happy. And then their chimney, built up on the top right of the roof with its fat, swirling strokes suggesting a father at the fireplace, a warm, motherly kitchen, and the comfort of a family home. To the side of the houses, the brightest and fluffiest trees, straight and tall protectors. Above them, chubby, baby-blue horizontal lines, and always, always to the very right, the round yellow sun leaning into the happy scene from the page corner, smiling, because suns are hot burning masses of smiles, making everything even happier than happy. At five, she'd never seen a house that looked like that. She'd only seen cramped terraced houses and shabby old flats, but she was happy. Unhappy children, you might have seen them in the movies, draw warped versions of the happy house. Their windows are black, their skies are black, and there isn't a smiling mass of sunlight in sight. Which is rather what Greg and Adele's house had looked like for months. It was one of the darkest storms in a century, one of the dullest suns for years and Greg's cardboard boxes, torn into sheets to fit over the house's windows, made the stone-cold interior darker and drearier than hell. Greg's nervous breakdown had come catastrophically. In the mathematical sense, that is. One day he was leading Adele on a stable, predictable and continuous trajectory towards a sprawling villa in the south make millions, sell company, retire in luxury. The next, he'd abruptly discontinued life's trajectory. He dragged Adele back out over the threshold of their magnificent metropolitan apartment in the dead of night. That's how Adele remembered it. And the next morning, she'd woken up in this small house between a large body of water and nowhere. Could I have a cup of tea? And a biscuit, Greg said. And that was it. Ooh, shall we stop there for a moment? Well, before we get to Greg and Adele, I want to ask you about this happy house thing. Is it the house you drew as a child? There's a lot of familiarity to the houses that I drew as a child. Although I had a path going up to my front door and a number on the front door and flowers in the garden. It just made me think about something I'd never thought about before, which is that it's true, children draw this very particular house. Door in the front, two windows, you know, the roof, the chimney. I wonder why that is. I don't ever remember being taught to do that. 
And for me also, the sun always in the right corner, always shining. Yeah, often, well, either flowers, bushes, always a tree. It's funny. And I never lived in a house that looked anything like that. I remember going to a maths tutorial at my kid's school, and it was to help you understand how the school taught maths. And the first thing we were all asked to do was to draw a house on a piece of paper. And I think the point of the exercise was to show you that you can do things in lots of different ways and still be right in the sense that everybody had a house drawn on the piece of paper. But I think the teacher had hoped that they would be wildly differing in the way they looked. And actually, the majority of the adults, I mean, there were clearly artists who'd gone to town and done really clever drawings. But the majority of us who, having been told we had two minutes to draw a house, had done exactly the same sort of description of a house there, somehow defeated the purpose of the exercise. But it it proves Catherine's point, which is that we all draw a happy house. We have a vision of what that looks like, which is really interesting. But I have to say, her description of what's inside that house isn't what I was thinking was inside mine as a child. The idea of a father at a fireplace is completely not something I would have thought of as a child at all. I can't think I ever thought of what was inside the house. I might have had a smiling, weaving face at a window with yellow crayoned curly hair, because I always wanted yellow curly hair. But I can't actually ever remember thinking about what was beyond the front door. I do remember once this little girl going round to her friends to play, and it wasn't someone I knew very well, but the mum was a cellist which I thought was very romantic and interesting. We arrived to homemade chocolate chip cookies straight out of the oven, and I thought, this is the real deal. This is how, like, proper families live. You know, in our family, it was like, you arrived and you got lucky if you got a packet of something opened. You could find it from the treat drawer because you had a pal around, but that was it. You know, so I remember thinking, oh, this is how the real world lives. But then I think this description of it really helps us understand Adele somehow. You know, that she's not one of these unhappy children who draws black skies or whatever. And you might have seen them in the movies. She's very clear that she's not one of those people. Whatever they are, you know, whether they're people who are overly dramatic or I don't know what you made of that, that whole unhappy children, you might have seen them in the movies. Like you wouldn't possibly know one. And I think we get a lot of Adele as well in that first section where she's taking out the bins and looks back. And even in the midst of the upheaval that she's going through, she's able to see in wonderment you know acknowledge the happiness that the house holds my theory which is coming you know more into fruition lately is that people are really are not necessarily a product of their environments but quite often they are who they are and they respond to those environments so you know in this situation even though you know she's moved out of some kind of glossy life into a little dark house with the windows cardboarded out she's able to look and see something happy which says so much about her rather than her place And more and more I'm thinking people are, yes, people find themselves in terrible situations. And of course, they're, you know, impacted by those. It wouldn't be crazy enough to suggest they weren't. But even in those situations, certain kinds of people are able to find moments of joy, which is remarkable to me. And I think a lot of that's to do with your own, the way you are, but also the way that your internal narrative talks to you. And I don't know if you necessarily have a huge amount of control over that. Your inner life, I think, has a lot to do and, and how much space and time you can give to let your inner life be heard, I think determines a lot of how you project outwardly. 
I think you're right. And I used to think that that was a product possibly. And I still think in some respects it must be of your experiences. But then I think as soon as I had my own children, you realise people are people, you know, that they are somewhat a product of their environments. But I have a child probably who's a worrier and one who's more of a risk taker. They haven't really had a different bringing. You know, how they respond to the world has a lot to do with who they are and less to do with what I've made them into or their circumstances have made them into. I think that when you accept that about people, it gives them and you a kind of freedom to accept them as they are. It's a hard thing to do as a parent, but I'm working on it. Shall we keep going? Yeah. Greg and Adele had been married for nine years after previously having been married for 20 years and 17 years respectively. For the first eight years, they live fast and fabulous in the brightest and most spacious hotel rooms and apartments, perched high above a city's foundations, all paid for by Greg's startup. In their ninth year together, they fell into this small house. It soon became clear that Greg and Adele were meant to use the little house to hide for a while. In theory, the simplicity of an eensy-weensy house is comforting because it implies that life is easy, cheery and sunshiny. Child's play. But in reality, things were much more ambiguous. A happy house could be a bankrupt house. But that's nobody's business. No one should judge a person by the house they inhabit. So many monstrous things can happen in a simple, small house. Here are some. You can lose your money. You can lose your mind. You can lose your sex. You can lose your period. Do you feel like murdering your husband? Said Adele's new doctor in the single building block of a medical clinic in the nearest village. No, Adele said. Is that what I have to look forward to? It's what most women say they feel. Honestly, the only thing Adele felt about her husband was that she felt like leaving him. The feeling was so strong, it was more than a feeling. It was a plan. It was a plan with its own schedule and its own checklist. But Greg left first. He picked up their retirement camper van and started the long drive down south to what would be their sultry, warm resting place. This wee house is as much camping as I can stand, Adele said. She was in the kitchen texting Greg, who was in the sitting room texting her about their alternative retirement plans. Greg leaves. Adele stays. Here, she is taking the bins out for the very first time. It's easy enough work. Everything's easier now. As she steps back into the house, she's like a visitor taking in information about the people who live here. Everything is deliberately arranged. There's a specific story she wishes to tell in the kitchen, a vase of fresh flowers. Care for a chat? In the sitting room, the large recliner, in masculine tones, and a side table with a short pile of two or three books and a setting for tea. Care for a cup of tea and a biscuit? The fireplace is on standby with its kindling and logs. Care for a cuddle and a movie? On the walls... Now there's the ambiguous part of the story. Mirrors. Mirrors everywhere. Even beyond the sitting room, into the hall and into the bathroom and upstairs too. Care for a brighter and an enlarged room? Care to saute and plie and pirouette? Care to see yourself? See what you've become? It's easy to hide in a small, simple house if it's just you and your happy childhood memories. 
They say that memory is identity, that you are what you choose to remember. Did Greg already know this when he left ahead of her? Was he offering her the opportunity to imagine life without him? Did he know how the house would change when he left? How the bed would widen? How his recliner would soften? How his wardrobe would ache to hold his coats again? Here, take the house. Try it on your own. Try it without me. Use it to survive, to live, and leave it. Just leave it and come and forgive me. We're in this together, remember, this thing called life, and soon, well, soon we'll both be dead and gone, and soon after that we'll both be forgotten, so try it all out. Try it all out, and then come. Come. I didn't see the end of that coming, did you? No, I thought he was gone. I didn't think he wanted her back. Almost feels like he needs to put a full stop after his catastrophic breakdown and move on, and then maybe he can pick up his life again, or they can pick up their life together again. It's funny because I had thought that they were younger than they are. I had put them in their kind of 30s or something. And obviously they aren't. If you've been married 28 years, that means by definition you're of a certain age anyway, 28 years in total. Yeah, and it felt that Greg would be at the end of his career. So I initially thought that he was going to have to build a new life and a new career and post whatever had happened. But the fact he's that much older then, maybe maybe that just means his career's cut short and, and he gets now to do something else, something different. Retire in his camper van. He's the one who has the breakdown, boards up the windows with cardboard. But actually I start worrying about her mental health in this second bit. You know, this kind of strange arrangement of things. It doesn't the, the arrangements themselves don't seem strange. It's the way she describes it. Well she's the one seeing the doctor in the village, isn't she? So suddenly I'm wondering about our narrator here. You know, I I have less confidence in her ability to see things for what they are. So that means two things. So, And for me, that comes in the kind of care for a chat, care for a cup of tea. Strange to leave a tea set out in the sitting room. That felt to me a little bit like her trying to recreate the happy house or the inside of the happy house that she had. The flowers and the tea and biscuits and movies and... Or keeping up pretenses, you know, that everything's fine and these are the sorts of days that I have always ready for a movie or or it could be the other way around. And I think I've spoken about this before on the podcast, but my very first flat in law school, I was so excited to have a flat to myself that I had all these sorts of things prepared, like I always had a bottle of wine in the fridge and which felt quite sophisticated, you know, and I always had various things in the cupboards in case someone dropped in. And I remember thinking about that, feeling really grown up always having bits on the ready for visitors or whatever and being so delighted by that idea. So the opposite could be true, that she's finally free to have people in and she's imagining what life might be like. But if you go back to the kind of possibly not mentally stable herself view, it does make me wonder how we get to the end. Is that true? Has she just convinced herself that he wants her back? Who she set the tea out for? Is it for herself to steady her ship? Or is it, as you say, because she now feels she can have people in? The fireplace on standby. Then the mirrors is the point, I think. Oh, okay. There's something about having a house full of mirrors. You know, not being able to see anything else apart from yourself. But we know it's a small, dark house, don't we? Yeah. So the mirrors could just be a way of her trying to broaden her horizon and broaden her outlooks. Or just brighten up a room. And there's something that's quite threatening in that last line, care to see yourself, see what you've become. That doesn't feel a comfortable invitation to me. Not at all. 
And there's something funny about that litany of saute, plie and pirouette. I suddenly started thinking, is saute some kind of weird, or is it a ballet term? Because I think of it as a cooking term. No, it's a ballet term. So, but also she's of, a, of an age that I wouldn't imagine her doing those ballet moves. But that all that leads up to this idea that he wants her to come. And there's a real part of me that's left with a question of, does he really? Or has she turned around, seen the happy house and convinced herself of that? I hadn't thought of that. I had taken it on the value that he does want her to go, but that she needs this time to work out for herself whether she's going to accept that invitation or not. But I suppose he is in the sitting room texting about their alternative retirement plans. There is some evidence that he wants her to go, that he hasn't just left without her. But I did wonder, you know, if she's sort of talking herself into that at the end, you know, especially that that beautiful ending, try it on your own, try it without me, use it to survive. It feels like it's building in the way that you might convince yourself of something. So yeah, I love that we don't know. And it's quite directive, isn't it? Try it out and then come, come, not try it out and if you want to come. It feels a bit like the tea and biscuits. Yeah, it does. And it feels like the litany I might have in my head as I'm trying to convince myself to do something I don't want to do. And when you end with, you know, soon we're going to all be dead, try really trying to convince yourself of something. Yeah, I mean, if you're weighing up the pros and cons, if you come down to that, that's the point at which you say, right, okay, the cons went. Yeah, absolutely. Although, you know, it's funny because so many of my favourite poems are about that, you know, there's not a moment to lose. That um, John Glenday poem that I love is, if you're convincing yourself about that at the moment, yeah, I'm not sure. But that poem is a gentler invitation, isn't it? This is so directive. This kind of makes me want Adele to say, well, I'm not quite sure what I want yet, but I do know that it's not following you in the camper van. And that the house is enough camping for her as it is. And there are you know, people who just aren't up for going smaller and smaller and smaller. You know, I, I find that really appealing. You know, I spent some time in a shepherd's hut writing not long ago, and the space was so tiny. I mean, really, you could practically wash the dishes from the bed. I loved it. But I can see that lots of people wouldn't, or certainly maybe wouldn't relish that with someone that they're not sure about. It's a simplification though, isn't it? In particular, I think at the stage of life we're at when things are so busy and there's always a call in your time or someone looking to have a conversation with you. The simplification of not having to make decisions or answer questions or tick boxes, as it were, is what's appealing. I'm not sure if you were generally less busy than you wouldn't crave the opposite. I think for me it's having less to look after so in that very very tiny space there are only so many dishes and so many mugs and there's literally nothing to do except get on with your writing which is what you're there for which is really useful. In this house you know I can be repotting plants or you know there's always something to do to take care of so I have to actively disengage from those voices that say floor needs mopped or you know the plants need watered or whatever it is you know the laundry needs done there's just it's never ending so yeah there's something really appealing about being in a tiny space that only you know there's just nothing to do and there's nothing to look after so you just have to get on with it but I can see how that might not be appealing forever <laughs> the thing I loved about this story was though the the gaps and the places for us to wander and and wonder and to have different ideas about what might be happening or going to happen. And I think we've said before, that's one of the things we almost look for when we're picking stories and poems to suggest our groups. It's, it's that space for people to have different ideas and, and different opinions. Yeah, and I love how she doesn't tell us at the end whether she's going. We don't even know if, if she's the one who wants to go or if he is. 
but she also hits on these kind of truths about the happy house, what we all envision it, the way that we all connect in different ways. So yeah, I love this story. It was really interesting. And the idea that you have two characters kind of rubbing up against each other. So we get to decide what we think of him. I'd like us to just finish with a quick reading of one of the other poems that Catherine picked out to go with her story, which I thought was just a lovely, gentle, happy way to to finish today. Um, And it's, I think you mentioned at the start, Hamish McLaren's Little Sea House. Little Sea House. Little Sea House, when I found you, the yellow poppies were nodding round you. Your blue slate hat that the four winds came to tug at over the tamarinds. I remember it well, the salmon nets drying, laugh, violin shell, and cease crying. For I will return through the sea haze. I am sailing back there, always, always. That's my ideal house. (laughs) (laughs) But this is a little house by a body of water, just like our last house. But it feels so different. It does, doesn't it? And I love the idea of the blue slate hat and the yellow poppies. Yeah, for me, I love this poem because it's exactly what I want. You know, I want a little house by the sea so I can swim and California poppies, um, the salmon nets. It makes me think of those beautiful Joan Early um, paintings from Catterline, you know, and in them there are often salmon nets drying and they often have little cottages as well on the sea. But I'm not even sure this is a real house in this poem. I think it's, you know, that that wish for something, you know, that imaginary perfect place. Or maybe that me projecting that onto this poem. I think you're allowed that if, if, if that's what you want. I don't think we know for sure, do we, on this one? No, which I really love. So, And you're right, it's a little sea house, but it's a different. It feels so positive doesn't it? But maybe maybe in the story Adele's going to turn her house into this house, maybe with the you know the dark gone this is what we have to look forward to you know, or maybe he'll come back, who knows We just don't know, do we? That's part but I do of the think joy. she's capable of it, yeah, I think the nice thing about that is I feel she's capable of it which is positive so. Lovely, thank you and thank you to Catherine for her story and for her poetry picks that's been one of the joys of uh, of the Unbound writing project is that when we asked our authors to pick their favourite poems, it, it's thrown up a whole load of different poets and poems that I hadn't come across before, so that's been a joy. I think that's it for today. Thank you so much for having us in your ears again, and we hope to be with you again very soon.